0: Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shovna Xavier, and I hope you're safe and well wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we are joined by Zanita Karak, an assistant professor of religious studies and cultural heritage at the University of Amsterdam, to discuss her new book, Bosnian Hajj, Literature, Multiple Paths to the Holy, published by Edinburgh Press in 2023. This important study maps out the understandings of Hajj and Islamic geography by Bosnian Muslim authors who wrote in different genres from the 16th to the 21st centuries. It captures how Hajj was imagined and constructed in relation to cosmology, ritual, Sufi saints, and political and temporal realities, while remaining unchanged in other ways. The book generatively theorizes geographies in relation to mobility, but also in relation to emotion, body, and embodiment, materiality, and the sacred. Karak also situates a story of Bosnian Muslims um, in relation to Hajj and Islamic geography. The book will be of interest to scholars of Bosnian studies, Islamic studies, especially those with interest in pilgrimage and ritual studies. In our conversation today, Carrick and I spoke about how to think of the archives, methodological approaches to engaging texts such as travelogues, Sufi pilgrimage practices, and much more. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Zanita Carrick about her new book, Bosnian Hajj Literature, Many Paths to the Holy. Hi, Janita. Thank you so much for joining us in the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast to discuss your new book, Bosnian Hajj Literature: Multiple Paths, Paths to the Holy. How are you doing today? Uh,
1: thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very well here in
0: the rainy Berlin. Thanks. Um, I know there's a lot of changes and stuff going on so I super appreciate you making the time to connect with us and we have a time difference but um, uh, you probably know on the podcast we have a tradition to ask a little bit about what your intellectual journey was and perhaps what led you to write this particular book. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess
1: like the background of of this book, of, the writing of this book is also kind of connected, obviously connected to, to my own personal history. Um, so this book started uh, or was supposed to be um, a literary study, um, uh, uh, literary study of Bosnian travelogues, more specifically a literary study of Bosnian hajj travelogues. However, when um, I started Doing the research, when I started kind of digging um, the archives and, and libraries to see what's there, I realized that, um, first of all, there is um, but plenty of literature from the 20th century, which is in the form of travelogues. Uh, not so much in uh, the periods before that. A um, couple of amazing travelogues, but um, not, not many in number. On the other side, what I noticed is that there is uh, a large number of different genres and different texts which deal with Hajj in from different angles, not necessarily in the shape and in the form of of a travelogue. Um, all of that literature, all of these texts, kind of uh, shaped um, what I call Hajj discourses. Um, and I realized that dealing with or focusing only on Hajj travelogues. Um, would be quite narrow and it wouldn't really fully represent what Hajj meant for Bosnian Muslims, both pre-modern and and modern Muslims. Um, So in in that way, it kind of led me to, to first of all, consider this wide range of literature, but then it led me to to certain challenges as well. So one of these challenges was uh, the fact that uh, looking into all kinds of writings about the Hajj, also, um, in a way, um, did not uh, was was not in in a way like looking in, into all these kinds of different texts led me to 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 see how these talk these texts were not really appreciated um, by different generations of historians or um, simply by by wider readership um so there was definitely a bias and a certain type of a prejudice against um like simple writings about the Hajj or what we consider to be simple like itineraries on Hajj or uh, religious treatises on Hajj so there were like different types of prejudice um related to these types of texts and they simply avoided um researchers attention um and that again, kind of shaped and and formed the way um, I looked into uh, my research as a whole, uh, realizing that I cannot really observe this literature only in the light of literary studies or literary criticism, but that I have to actually see the um, religious um, dimensions which are obviously behind um, these texts. Um, And then obviously like we write the books, but also books write us. Um, So I moved around a lot not only physically, I also moved around um, academically and intellectually, I guess. Um, So it led me to kind of explore um, the boundaries of my research uh, within the area studies, but also as they connect to um, other fields like Islamic studies or um, how basically my research falls within the larger umbrella of Islamic studies. But it also kind of crosses over with uh, religious studies and um and so on. Um so I would say that the final product is something which is quite different from what I started with. Um but
0: um I, I hope it, it it was the right way. I love this idea of the book writing us, because I think one <laughs> of the things I really appreciated was this like question about place, belonging, and shifting, and how the Hajj serves as a mediator of all these things across time and space, which you do in the body of the chapters. Um, I'm really interested in your archives and your method of like finding these archives, because I'm so amazed with the diversity of sources across time that you've been able to engage with pre-modern and modern. Um, so how did you go about this? Were there, I imagine, challenges? Um, it's, you know, in some sometimes you write that these were personal archives, like people had things, right? Um, And others I would imagine were um, archived in spaces, like official institutional spaces. And of course, this is set against a context in Bosnia where there was a war that interrupts archives, which is really complicated and fascinating. So I wonder if that factored into any of the challenges of accessing some of the sources you you use in the book. So basically um, my first,
1: Um, My first steps in in the research, uh, the first steps in kind of collecting the material uh, were obviously through the lenses of a highly curated um, travel of literature, which I could find, for example, in anthologies um, published throughout the 20th century. So some of this uh, literature was already in a way curated and presented to the wider audiences. So that was like the first step. Like, obviously, I had to look into travelogues of, of for example, Mohamed Kripov, uh, travelogues of uh, Yusuf and, and and others. But then as you kind of go further, um, you kind of realize that this is just like the tip of the iceberg and the rest of the material was um, spread out, you know, perhaps a little bit haphazard way like in in different um types of institutions as you correctly said um so with some institutions it was pretty straightforward um you know Gazi biblioteka library in in bosnia was, was like the key institution or one of the key institutions um also uh, obviously the uh the library in, in istanbul um i also used the material uh which um comes from uh for example uh, al-azhar library in, in cairo but some of the some of the writings um do not really exist either in this like curated um anthologies or in this set of of very highly uh set lists of of, of literary texts neither in in the official institutions but um, you kind of come across it once you um, start talking about your research. So as I talked about my research, as I wrote about my research in um, in Bosnian uh, newspapers, uh, people would kind of contact me and say, you know, there is like this um, travelogue. I mean, it's not published from travelogue, hatch travelogue from my grandfather or my grandma. Uh, it hasn't been published. Uh, would you kind of look at it? Um, so I think that was like probably the most interesting part of, of the research because you it's really unexpected. It's also quite private and intimate because someone is letting you in, into their um, space. Something sometimes um, I was not even able to see these manuscripts because at the last moment um, the family would decide not to show the travelogue or the itinerary to me, because uh they considered it to to be the um to be kind of reserved only for the eyes of the family and and so on. So um there were like all kinds of stories uh related to that. Um so all in all, I would say it's um it made me also realize that what we see as archive is actually like much wider uh than what is has been in a way officially um Set or uh, what has been officially created. So, archive can be something which is much, much wider and broader.
0: I love that. And I think you talk about that in the introduction of you publishing the story in the newspaper and people writing to you, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, How do you approach a travelogue or itinerary? Like, what as a text? I wonder if it's different from any other text that you might approach, or do you approach these texts when you're engaging them in the same way that you would, let's say, I don't know, the Quran or something else. Like, what are some things that you're looking for? Because I'm really fascinated by your relationship to some of these texts and how you engage them and some of the things that you're teasing out. Um, And especially because a lot of that is also dependent on your relationship, I would imagine, with the authors of the text, right? Knowing that perhaps... I mean, you know you're negotiating who your audiences were sometimes we're debating and thinking about who they were writing for right bosnians back home or um and so and their medium too like how is an itinerary like an outline of maybe where they were going different from perhaps a, you know a travelogue if it's a little bit more detailed right so were those questions that were coming up or was it something you were super comfortable with as you're inter- engaging in this type of medium so basically, I started from
1: the premise that um, the Hajj is obviously both the journey and the destination. So it's journey and the ritual. So that was the main um, goal which I had when I kind of approached the, the material to kind of tease out, to see what's there related to both the, the journey and, and the ritual. Um, obviously, it the material I worked with was um, quite different and quite varied. And I could not always find both dimensions. Uh, With the travelogue, obviously, one expects to find both uh, the descriptions of the journey and obviously the descriptions of of the Hajj rituals. Um, So the the material was like really, in in some parts, overwhelming. So um, I would say that what ended up in a book is um, a much smaller amount of uh, what has been actually left out and obviously there is always something which you regret not putting in the book And so in some parts I have to be very honest like in some parts I try to uh, includes something which is extraordinary, which is um quite unusual, something which I, I thought would um present the, the novelty of, of, of the uh, ritual and the journey. Um in some other parts, however, I wanted to to just um demonstrate how um there is something which is particularly common uh, for the Bosnian hadjis, Um and something which can be found in different travelogues, but, you know, you have to kind of include that in, in an exemplary um, case. So I would say that it really depended on what I wanted to to show and, and prove. Um, but in, a, in any case, um, I would say that the majority of um, things are still being kind of left out of, of book because it's just like it's the nature of, of the
0: genre. You can't include everything. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, you have so much information already in the book that could have been other chapters as well. Um Uh, Most of our or maybe some of our listeners may not know the context of Bosnia or, you know, um, because there's a particular reality here that I think that's also important. That makes kind of the routes that you're mapping to Mecca and Medina really important. So there's like important geographical story that's happening that's layered with politics. Um, So I wonder if you could situate a little bit about this. You talk a little bit in your introduction, the Bosnian context, Bosnian Islam. And then that really situates the importance of why this Hajj and this ritual and these maps and routes are important to the story of Bosnia as well. So,
1: so basically I wanted to focus on the um, South Slavic speaking Muslims um, from a region which was or traditionally called Bosnia. Um, and these South Slavic um, speakers uh, who are Muslim, um the, the words i used for them were both bosnian muslim and bosniak um using the term bosniak uh, i think is really important because it um denotes the not only the historical dimension but also the contemporary um desire of bosniaks to kind of self determine and, and self identify um and self define as as bosniaks so i use both terms uh, interchangeably Um, I think the Bosnian context is extremely important um, in terms of the historical changes which happen. So uh, the historical changes which happen are um, basically uh, delineated by wars, delineated by the change of empires. So Bosnia is under the um, Ottoman rule or the rule of the Ottoman Empire um, until um, 1878. Eight or uh 1908. Uh so there is the Austro-Hungarian occupation in the 1878, and then there is the annexation, the formal annexation in the 1908. Um Bosnia is then a part of um, other state structures throughout um throughout the 20th century. Uh, it's a part of the structure of, of um um uh, the old yugoslavia or kingdom of yugoslavia then later on it's a part of uh the uh, yugoslavia from uh, 1945 onwards uh then obviously there is uh the um aggression on, on bosnia which uh in 1992 uh proclaimed its independence so all of these things um are quite relevant in our understanding of uh, how something uh something both very intimate but also um, very communal can be affected by so the wars, the change of uh, states and and, uh, empire structures um, all of it affects obviously the physical way people go on a hajj Um, there are years in which people cannot go on a hajj Um, they are prevented from going there then um, obviously that affects also how they relate to, to the hajj so one part of it was, um, so one part of this historical dimension was to show how um, hajj can be affected, uh, both physically and in in, in terms of its uh, religious imaginary. But um, I think I also wanted to stress how um, there is something really constant which remains throughout these different periods. Um, and that is the devotion to, towards um, the hajj. So regardless of which period we're talking about, whether it's the 16th century um, Ottoman Bosnian writings about Mecca, or we are talking about the 21st century blogs, um, you know, published on somewhere on the internet or Facebook or somewhere, um, there is the same uh, identifiable uh, desire to kind of go on a Hajj and foster this relationship to, to Mecca and Medina. So I guess the the whole historical part proves to be um, to kind of show both the change and continuity in, in some ways.
0: Yeah, which is like amazing to see because your chapter one starts in the 16th century and your conclusion takes us to the pandemics. <laughs> so the <Yeah. laughs> multiple pandemics that you also discussed in the different periods as well, which is really interesting to read about the plague and quarantine practices um, and how a lot of that were racialized particular ethnic communities as well and how Bosniak Muslims were treated. Um, so yeah, we could get into some of the details. We probably won't be able to get into all of the fantastic details of the book, but in chapter one, you really deal with 16th to 17th century. Um, you're looking at these um, um, Bosnian scholars in the Ottoman Empire who are writing about um, the pilgrimage practice. Um, and they're particularly focused on, as you say, Medina and the prophet, which I thought was really, really fascinating. And you frame this as, I think the sentience of the prophet, like the idea of like how they're really focused on the feeling and like kind of the presence of the prophet and the way that they're describing it. This is one of the things that really stood out for me. So I know there were three different scholars that are kind of focused in this chapter, but what are some things that you would want readers to know about what you're trying to do in this work and really thinking about um, the title, which is the the meanings of the sacred? So basically
1: um, when it comes to this like Bosnian perspective, Um, there are, I think, two two things at play uh, in this particular chapter. So we we now encounter uh, the first treatises on Hajj written by Ottoman Bosnians. So these treatises are written in the genres which are the classical genres of, of Islamic literature. They they are fabile literature, uh, the Awail, the awahir, uh, like general treatises on on different things. Um, so. Just to kind of clarify for the readers, uh, for the listeners, uh, the literature, for example, is a very, very old classical Islamic genre coming, extending from the, from the 8th century, um, which talks about the virtues of a, of a particular object. So you could write a favile on, on anything, like literally anything, uh, from the favail of, of the Quran to favail of uh, the places and, and regions, like very, very famous are and very common are for a while of Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem regions and uh, uh, like Sham and and so on. So uh, what we see here, what we encounter here in the 17th century is like late late 16th, beginning of the 17th century is literally Bosnians writing in these old classical genres. So they're already embedding themselves in uh, in a long, long. Islamic tradition of of writing. Um, And we kind of have to always keep in in mind uh, in the background that uh, we're talking about uh, people who have um, been Islamized, who who have um, accepted Islam uh, relatively recently. So they kind of come under the full historical light as people who kind of contribute to the Ottoman learned culture on an equal footing. Um, So that's like this dimension which I really wanted to to show. And they are contributing to the Hajj discourse on a a very equal, on an equal level. So um, the second thing which I wanted to to show is um, how what we see at that point is the setting of the meanings of of the Hajj, um, which the later works are going to kind of use, read, um, and and some of these arguments are going to come up later as well, in later times as well. Um, All three authors write um, in a Sufi framework, uh, which obviously tells us something about the meaning-making processes, so they do not consider uh, the Hajj as a ritual, um, as only something which um, is an act of obedience, but also they add different types of layers of of the Sufi meanings to to the different parts of the rites. Um, So in one treatise, for example, the author is uh, dedicating um, his attention to uh, the Black Stone, for example, uh, imbuing it with um, human characteristics, um, also kind of inverting this anthropomorphic or anthropocentric perspective, so there is like a lot of a lot lot of things going on uh, 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 in this particular treatise. The other author, uh, Imam Mamsade, he is um, dedicating his treatise to the virtues of Medina. Um, he's trying to show how uh, Medina is is basically the place of love. It's a place of prophetic love. So all of these. Ideas um, are kind of uh, revolving around uh, not simply just saying, like, oh, you know, people should go to Mecca and they should perform duties, but, you know, there is something, there are some additional layers to it. Um, And the third part is basically, um, again, kind of related to the first thing. um, It's basically not only that the Ottoman Bosnians are. Writing about the Hajj in, in very old classical forms, but they are also trying to kind of present the Hajj in their own contemporary moment, which, um, if we kind of recall, uh, they're writing in the 16th century, 16th and the, 16th and the 17th century. They are also uh, writing in the peak of, of the Ottoman Empire, so to speak, um, and they are actively promoting the Hajj which basically means that um, they're writing in the service of, of the Ottoman rulers. And that's quite obvious, at least from uh, one of, of these um, writings, where uh, the author Alida del Bosnevi um, very explicitly praises the Ottomans as the protectors of, of Kaaba, um, as, some, as, as the dynasty which protects the Hajj, and he kind of uh, implores the readers to kind of accept that um, Ottoman um, dominance and, and framework so what we see there is um perhaps somewhat static uh but also quite um interesting meaning process meaning making process uh static in a way that uh the meanings which are presented are um quite fixed and they're presented as very universal um, but we, from a variety of, of these different dimensions, we can actually see that there is an underlying meaning-making processes going on um, un- under these different uh, treatises, because none of them is quite similar to the other, and they all present different say uh, different sides um, of the whole
0: theme. And some of the themes that you're picking up here on materiality, um, on place, body, home, it also carries on to the next chapter, where... You start realizing that although people are making these pilgrimages to Mecca, there's also stops in between that mm-hmm. are adding further nodes. Um, and of course, I enjoyed this because a lot of this had to do with um ZR or pilgrimages to other Sufi scenes, which as we prog- see progressively throughout the book, as time passes, there's becomes quite contentious, right? Um yeah. so um What are these relationships then that some, you know, some of these pilgrims, Haji Bosnians were having with different places they were stopping along the way? Like Iraq was something, uh, a location that came up um, quite frequently. Um, um, Ibn al-Arabi, I think, in in Damascus was another figure. And it was also interesting to read about how his. Bot becomes popularized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really, I loved reading about that. So um, what were these relationships to Sufi saints? You know, what were they hoping to get going to these places along the way and making it a bigger journey that it wasn't a straight shot to Mecca, that there was mm-hmm. lots of different stops along the way?
1: Yeah, I think it's really great when we look into these pre-modern texts to see how um, the Hajj was not only... Um, not only the journey to to mecca and Medina, but it very naturally subsumed other types of journeys and mobilities under um or within its its boundaries and within its framework um, and none of these different mobilities kind of contradicted each other so um for the authors who i deal with in the second chapter um, who are mostly from the 18th century uh, for them there was no contradiction uh, between going to, to Mecca and Medina and stopping by in Damascus in Cairo to pay visit to, to the tombs of, of saints and scholars. So there's absolutely no contradiction between these two types of journeys. Um, as a matter of fact, the authors really tried to show um, different facets. And again, we come to this word of, of fadl and favila and Fadail of virtues of visiting these places. So in some ways, they, they did try to kind of collect in a way as many blessings as they could on the way. Um, And also it was not only, it was uh, obviously barakah or blessing was the crucial part of visiting the, the saints, but there was also an educational aspect to it. Uh, because the authors are really keen on uh, on giving as many information like as as much as they can about these different places um so they cite the books they read something in they try to say like well this scholar lived here and he did this and he did that and um they they're very very interested in all the, these different details so um in some cases they even um it seems to me that they rely on this um, Additional literature, which they read on, on histories and chronicles, they, re- they rely on it so much that they sometimes um, incorporate certain details uh, where um, they are not to be seen. For example, uh, one of the authors mentions uh, going to the tomb of Ibn Arabi in Cairo, but the tomb of Ibn, of, of Ibn Arabi is in Damascus. So for me, the only logical conclusion was uh, that he really wanted to put it there in the list of the tombs he visited, even though when it was not really true. Um, so, you know, there, there is a really des- desire to kind of put everything there on the paper and, and, and to, to give um, all these infos out there. Um, again, to kind of go back to the Bosnian framework of, of, of this chapter, in all of this, like whether visiting the saints, uh, for beraka or um to give information to the readers or again going to to hajj um bosnia kind of lurks in the background always um and what i found really interesting is that even in the places of the highest sanctity of the greatest holiness uh these bosnian authors often um reflect on what it means to what well, they best basically always reflect on um on their own geographical position related to Mecca and Medina. Um, so sometimes they would express it in, in, in by saying, like, oh, well, you know, I'm here, I'm in Kaaba, I'm, I'm close to Kaaba, like my my heart is full. But the love towards Bosnia still keeps me going, which is really interesting, like how Bosnia kind of pops up in these like places of of highest sanctity, and and it it does kind of matter as as as, as as a geography in, in the background, which will obviously in the later
0: chapters become even, even more obvious. No, I absolutely love this chapter, obviously. <laughs> the, <laughs> um, chapter three, I think rightly is titled Change. And I think this is like in the, in the middle of the book, it's like shifting, right? I think um, in terms of time, we're talking about an interwar period. Things are really looming in the background. I think in the book, you in your conclusion in chapter three, you write it as encroaching modernity, you know, print, steamships, like there's things that are coming that are really signaling change. Um and then still you have this pilgrimage practice, right? So how is it in light of this particular moment in time um when are, you know, people are still traveling, what is being projected or what kind of anxieties are being evoked in this moment? Because I would imagine all of the the stuff that's happening externally is also forcing a lot of internal anxieties that we start noticing in subsequent chapters thereof and that ends up being projected into um, the Hajj pilgrimage and so this is specifically into war period um, which I think is an important historical moment where a lot of things are happening so what are some things that you're trying to do and how does the Hajj still maintain a significance or what are some things that are as you're saying the same but what are things that are also being shifted in some ways yeah so I would say that the
1: greatest changes which happen in um in this period well, one of them obviously is the fact that um the greatest number of people go on a hajj like so so people go on a hajj in unprecedented numbers this obviously drives up the number of um books writings essays reportages like everything on hajj um together with that goes um we together like what we can see here also are the changes happening in in the Arabian Peninsula itself um so it kind of affects the way um people approach Hajj uh, they have very very strong feelings about the new ruling in in um in Arabian Peninsula they um are very very opinionated about that um but I would say the the greatest change of it all is the fact that um, Hajj now becomes, together with Islam, it becomes an object of analysis, of dissection, not only by Muslim authors, but also by non-Muslim authors. And this is something which um, has a very strong impact on the way Muslims themselves see Hajj. So um, when Hajj becomes the journey to hajj becomes an object of the attention of the non-Muslim authors. And often it's, when we're talking about um, Serb and and Croat uh, authors, uh, the attention given to hajj is quite a negative one. Um, So once this happens, once um, the writings about the hajj become quite overwhelmingly negative, hajj is presented as um, like a relic, like a a very... um, unusual, like a very unnecessary custom, something which is not really, um, a ritual which is not really suitable for the modern age. Um, And like the descriptions of the Hajj become even worse. Um, Once this happens, uh, the Muslim authors have, they feel the need to defend it. So there is what happens in the 20th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, and we don't really have that in the earlier period, is this defensive attitude that hajj has to be presented, hajj has to be uh, explained to not only Muslim audiences, but also non-Muslim audiences. And this is the root of a discourse which is, I would say, excellent even today, because it kind of gives rise to to all kinds of cliches um, and um, paradigms uh, which depict hajj as uh, useful, utilitarian, um, something which is very rational, as opposed to, um, you know, just simply like being a bodily practice or or something like that. So we have we have the beginnings of the discourse, which will affect the way Muslims think about the Hajj and Muslims write about the Hajj. So I think this is the the crucial change which happens in, in this period. Um, together with, obviously, these technological changes, to, together with, with everything else which happens.
0: It was it was really fascinating to just, like, feel the anxiety, right? Um, and then this is continuing on to, I think, chapter four, where this becomes really post-World War II, right? Um, and there's a lot of things kind of looming in the background. Um, Palestine is looming in the background, mm-hmm. so there's an interesting kind of, I think you frame it as absence of presence, like there's an interesting sense that it's there and it's not there, or people are avoiding it so there's anxieties mm-hmm. that are projected that way um, you have the development of more modern hajj literature right um, and there's also anxieties about non-muslims visiting or how like non-muslims are going to think about this place um orientalist fantasies that are coming up mm-hmm. about that place i think is associated with the non-muslims like you know coming into a place that should be boundaried and protected um, and i think the most other important one was just like islamic reform like anti-sufism that's also so there are so many things happening i think in terms of all these different factors you really do a wonderful job in this chapter just like mapping out how all of this is like informing again how people are relating to Mecca and Medina, how people are journeying to Mecca and Medina, and really what the Hajj is being perceived as. Um, And the emotions is here, what I think is like a really valuable theoretical piece that you're using to kind of extract and work through some of this. So I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about how emotion plays into this and how you feel it's useful as an analytical category to process some of all of these really big changes that are happening historically post-World War II.
1: So basically, the emotion kind of pops up in the fourth and fifth chapter, um, and it is like a testament to the fact that um, regardless how strong the reformist rhetoric was or reformist slash socialist rhetoric, which was quite dominant in in the uh, post-Second World War uh, literature, Hajj literature, regardless how strong it was with its insistence on the rationality and with its insistence on on the fact that hajj has to have a certain type of a um, social purpose in order to be valid, in order to be relevant for the modern age, um, this appearance of um, this constant reappearance of emotion and connected to that, obviously, body, is something which um, tells us, obviously, how hajj cannot be just reduced to an idea. It's not just a matter of intellect. It's not just a matter of ratio. It's literally like a right which which takes up one's body. And obviously body produces emotions. Um, So what I did in the fourth chapter, I wanted to present these different discourses which uh, appear in in the post-Second World War period uh, where we have uh, first of all, we have these organized hajj delegations which uh, were delegations of people selected by obviously the the, uh, the, the socialist um, uh, authorities, uh, people who, who who went to the Hajj and who in a way wrote highly curated, uh, highly censored travelogues, which are still very interesting to and very valuable to kind of read and analyze. Um, so these travelogues had aims to they had like two aims one was to uh basically connect muslims to uh muslims abroad outside of yugoslavia to kind of present the image uh benevolent Im- image of yugoslavia uh, to to others especially to to muslims in in the middle east um the second use of of or the second goal of these travelogs was to uh, in a way pro- portray uh the benevolence of the authorities towards the local population how um Religion is you know tolerated it, it's still something which can be uh, practiced. So the th- those are basically the first troubles which kind of appear in this period. Then we have obviously the Orientalist discourse with um with Zuko jumhur who who um, goes on a hajj but then you know writes um highly charged, very orientalist descriptions of, of uh, Mecca and Medina and basically gets also huge fame for it for it. Um, and obviously we have the dominance of the reformist discourse, which, um, in a way is related both to the institutional, um, structures. Um, so these types of discourses were, uh, fostered. They were in a way, uh, propagated, uh, in, in the seventies, in the 1980s. Um, but obviously we, we have to always keep in mind that they were not the only ones, um, since Uh, there is a sustained presence of the Sufi discourse as well. It's not as present as the reformist discourse, um, but it's also not completely silent. So through the Sufi discourse, again, we can see uh, the persistence of other dimensions of looking into Hajj. um, The insistence on emotions, the insistence on certain types of connectivities uh, that bind Muslims in Yugoslavia with other Muslims, and which are not only reduced to the state visits and state delegations, but they are basically connections of the heart. So there are these links which are not that obvious, but they're still kind of, they're underneath. And I would say that the body returns back with the vengeance in, in the fifth chapter, you know, with the Bosnian War, where um, literally the, the presence of the fighters who lost their limbs um, is something which cannot be ignored, or was not ignored in, in the Hajj discourses, and... Um, the body is like there and nobody can ignore it. Nobody can really say, you know, body doesn't matter. It's like the the idea which counts when you actually have, you know, people who who lost their limbs uh, in order to defend Islam. So uh the body is something which kind of becomes really crucial and very central in 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 the later in the latest period.
0: And as you're talking about chapter five, you really tell this important story of Munir. Um so I wonder if you could tell us and you start us off on the, you know, scene in a prison jail and this really vivid, intense dream. Um mm-hmm. And so I'm really fascinated by this idea that emotions serve as mapping points. And I love that. Mm-hmm. So, and in this case, dreams also do, right? Um, so if you could continue what you were saying in relation to this figure, that would be also amazing. So basically um, the fifth chapter starts with
1: uh, the dream account of Munir uh, Gabran Kapitanovich, who was uh, a member of the young Muslim movement which was banned after the second world war. Um, and as a member of, of this uh, banned movement, uh, Munir was also sent to prison. So he he wrote, I think, two memoirs, uh, recounting recounting his experiences in, in in these prisons after the Second World War. Uh, obviously, they were published um, only at a later at a later point after um, you know the censorship was was no longer in place. So in one of them, uh, Munir uh, describes uh, one of the dreams he had when he was lying in a prison uh, in, I think, 1950. So he talks about a dream he had um, in uh, during Ramadan. He was trying to fast and um, it was really hard to fast during Ramadan in a prison. So he had to pretend to not fast, but then he would not eat for like 24 hours or, or so. So one night he had this dream where um, he was trying to cross the river and uh, there were snakes coming up to him and he was afraid, he was terrified, but then uh, the snakes kind of passed him by um, and then he saw the signs to Mecca. And uh, that's when he knew that one day he's going to fulfill his dream and and, and actually go to uh, and perform Hajj. So this dream is recounted um in in his Hajj travelogue, like forty written forty forty four years later, when he actually goes goes on a Hajj, um with his sons, and in this point, um, Munir is already an old man, and he is now in in a wheelchair. So basically, there is again, like the centrality of, of the body, both in the dream account and then in the hard travelogue. So when he was young, he was in prison, he was, he was hungry, he was like fasting for 24 hours, he was tortured, he was, um, and he kind of understood his role in that prison as um almost like a martyrdom, or like something which kind of approaches that. And then 44 years ago, after that, He is um, in Mecca. He is traveling to to Hajj. And now he's carrying a Bosnian passport. Uh, It's happening in the midst of the war. Um, And he is going to Hajj um, again in a delegation of men who were chosen uh, to go on a Hajj sponsored by uh, Saudi Arabia in 1994. Um, It was like a very uh, highly publicized event because it... Uh, the people who were invited to go on a hajj in 1994 were uh, those who were wounded, wounded in, in the warfare, uh, men who, who lost their limbs. And Munir was also traveling with them. So in a way, there is this juxtaposition between his frail body because um, he he's not able to walk, but not because of the war, because of, of his um, age. So there is his body, which is in the wheelchair, and there are these bodies of young men who lost their limbs in the in the war, in the battle. So this imagery is kind of constantly um, there in, 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 in the Hajj uh, travelogue. Um, but the parallel, which is kind of being, uh, which is underneath all of this, is the fact that both Munir, um, and these men who, who go who, who go on a Hajj and uh, who lost their limbs, both of them kind of suffered for faith. Both of them, uh, both, the, both these men suffered for, uh, for Islam in some way. So um, that's kind of how the chapter starts and it kind of goes and in order to show the centrality of body uh, for uh, the Bosnian um, Hajj in the war and post-war period.
0: This is such a powerful chapter, like, wow, what a way to also end the book. Um, the conclusion, you take a step back and you bring us to the modern period. Um, you kind of context of how things were shifting, particularly during COVID, um, when people couldn't travel to Hajj and how um, Bosnian Muslims were trying to create relationships, maybe digitally or whatnot, um, through um, Through that. Um, So, what would you say in the moment now? Are those relationships to the Hajj? Are these delegations still going? Um, And what would you also, I guess, want readers now that we've kind of gone through some of the details of the book, would be a really important takeaway, right? I'm hearing really lots of important ideas about things that are fixed and not fixed um mm. the body the emotion just really beautiful imagery that's coming up as a way of mapping pilgrimage practices and so what would you hope our listeners to also take away from this book as the one of them the significance there's many significant points but one of the takeaways so i would
1: say it would be like this is something which i always repeat because it, it it's always on my mind um and that is the fact that you know the book is over but the Definitely, the project isn't over, or the way we observe Hajj is not over. Like it's, it's never going to be over. So, what I would like to, the readers to kind of, the listeners to um, take from this is um, to kind of observe how um, pilgrimage and other types of rituals um, they can have this like fixed structure, uh, but that allows them also a certain type of a freedom. So um, the. Structure of the Hajj is fixed, you know, the rights are there and they they're not really changing, but the way people approach them, the people, the way people experience them, um is definitely different from, from a period to period, from time to time. And I think it's really important to stay um in tune or stay attuned to to what's going to happen with Hajj in, in our times or um in, in the next 10 or 20 years. So I hear uh I'm here thinking about two things one of them is the um, what's going to happen with uh, the technological aspect of the experience in the hajj so we already we've all seen um, the projects which kind of want to center the ai and like the experience of the hajj and um, so what i would be really curious to know is not only how uh, regular pilgrims are going to experience that but also how this technology is going to kind of um affect the norm making processes related to the hajj as well whether they're going to affect them or not i mean it's in in a permanent on a permanent basis um, i'm not really sure but what i'm really kind of looking forward to is like this uh, this creative tension which i i believe is already happening so what's going to happen when you know people want to put on goggles and and just you know kind of experience um, the Hajj in, in, through that way. So that that's one thing. Uh, the second, and I would say um, a bit more somber uh, image, is uh, what's going to happen with Hajj in terms of the, or in, in light of the climate change. Um, I'm not really sure like how um, everything is kind of going to, to revolve in the next 10 or 20 years, but I do believe that the question of nature and the question of, human relation to the nature is going to be quite central and quite relevant for for the pilgrims themselves even. So um, I believe there is going to be a lot of rethinking of the centrality of of the human body versus, you know, the the environment in the context of something as massive, as huge as as Hajj is. So I would say, I would just like ask, ask the listeners to kind of just uh, pay attention to what's going to happen um, and to maybe also look into uh, the history of Hajj and see how what happened in, in, in the earlier periods, because all of these tensions happened earlier as
0: well, uh, obviously in a different shape and form. Um, so yeah, those are such productive questions to leave us with. And just in terms of the AI dimension and virtual reality, like is going on Hudge on like I know there's stimulation programs that do Hudge now, which I use in class when I teach, and I often ask students, "Is this the same or not?" And there's a huge debate that unfolds. Where some will say, "No, it's not the same," but it might mean something different to those who have accessibility issues and things like that. But it might also mean something different in an era of climate change when we're really concerned about our carbon footprint and impacting yep. nature as well. So it's that's really important. So thank you so much. Um, I have to ask you about the cover because um, I absolutely Definitely. love it. Um, and it's too bad that our listeners are listening, but you have they have to get the book and look at the cover because I love it. So did you want to tell us a little bit about the artist who did it? And um, yeah, I think it's fabulous. <laughs>
1: thank you so much. Thank you. And. Uh, Um,
0: also, I I always love that question, obviously.
1: Um, so the artist is Elvir Yusufovic, who is, uh, a friend of mine and and a really great artist. So, um, we talked about the cover of the book, uh, last year. And, um, basically I I told Elvir about, um, a story about these two, um, women who went on a hajj in 1981, who, uh, in a way, they had like a really interesting story behind one of them. Uh, both of them belonged, again, to this young Muslim movement. Um, both of them, like one of them was definitely imprisoned prison for these activities after the Second World War. And now we're already talking about the 1980s. I think both of them were at that point in their 50s. So they decided to go on a hajj. But because of the whole, you know, baggage which they carried, they kind of think and they, they were like, well you know, we don't really want to go by plane for different, all range of, of different reasons for all set, for different sets of reasons. Um, and they just decide to go on a hajj by car. But the thing was, like, obviously they went with their husbands, uh, but the thing was the husbands couldn't drive or they wouldn't drive or there was like something implied there. So they they were just like, well, no problem. Like we're, we're going to drive. Both of them had like this international driver's license. So they decide to go on a hajj, to, to go on a hajj by car. Um, and then they pass through, you know, Istanbul, Damascus, uh, they go through Jordan, they enter Saudi Arabia, and they literally did not have any problem driving through Saudi. Apart from like one place where the policeman told them like to pretend, like to, to kind of put the husband of one of them uh, to kind of pretend to drive. Um, so just just like, so the form is kind of fulfilled, but, Basically, they, they dro- drove through um, all the way up to Mecca. Um, and basically, um, they they draw in, in this like little car and I have a, a photo of them like standing in front, front of that car, which is, it's really kind of cute and, and, and also very nostalgic in a way. Um, so basically, what we wanted to kind of do with this cover is to kind of play with different things. So one of them is obviously driving two women driving um through Saudi Arabia which is something which definitely shocked the readers of their travelogue when it came out in 2014. That that was definitely something which caused like a lot of positive reaction because I think back then in 2014 women still couldn't drive in in Saudi. Um but they what we also wanted to do with with the cover is to show how they Come from, uh, they they do drive to to Mecca, and uh, the goal is obviously to do the to perform the Hajj, and they, in their own words, they experience what they call the true brotherhood and unity. Uh, so they use the, the socialist slang to kind of describe um, the religious feeling, which I thought was really amazing. But at the same time, they also never forget where they came from. And that's kind of sim- symbolized by these different objects on, on the left, like cathedral, like the Vagova uh, Mosque in, in Sarajevo. Um, so the appearance of these objects symbolizes uh, not only their Muslim background, but also the fact that they lived their lives in, in Sarajevo, which is, you know, the city of, of different people. uh, Muslims and non-Muslims and what's also on the cover is uh, the presence of people who um, you know other pilgrims non-Bosnian pilgrims who definitely participated in in their own uh, pilgrimage uh, experience
0: it's so cool um so did Albir do this like it's his original art for the book cover yeah 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 Yeah. hopefully you have this printed and framed somewhere in your in your home um because it's it's a good idea (laughs) yeah you should it's absolutely lovely lovely i just love their faces and this is a story of um i think adija and safia that you talk about in the introduction right um So I just love the expressions on their face and one of them with their head out the window, just smiling. It's just lovely. Um, so that's awesome. Thanks so much for letting us know this background story. Um, I know you've just published the book and uh, you have lots of changes coming up, which are really exciting. So hopefully you're taking time to enjoy and celebrate. Um, but is there any project that's looming in the background that you're hoping to work on in the future? Or what are you going to pursue some of these questions around geography and pilgrimage and materiality and placemaking more? or shipped in other places
1: so currently I'm trying to explore more different forms of devotional piety um, among the early modern Ottoman, Ottomans in general um, I do I am I am always interested in the questions of continuity so um, I would love to see how these different forms of devotional piety extend up to the modern age as well um, and I am currently working on a project of devotional piety as um, a way of dealing with, let's say, reality of, of our modern age. So, um, again, I would say what, what remains kind of constant in my work is um, I like to, to observe um Religious phenomena in in a longer in in like a long durée perspective. So I I really hope that's um, going to kind of remain um, in in future as well.
0: Amazing. Well, I wish you all the best the next few months as um you go on your own journey. Um, I hope it's a good one, and I really hope our listeners will pick up the book. Um, and I really appreciated this book and really loved the work that you did, and I took away a lot theoretically. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and spending time with us, and I hope I'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Shabana. Thank you so much. And that was my conversation with Zanita Carriage about her new book. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take good care.